Yeah. So I would say that the biggest thing that I would hope you take away from this, especially, you know, some of the stumbling blocks in my career that I shared is don't latch on to any one thing. Don't latch on to one language and be determined to prove other people wrong that it's the be all and end all or one library or one technology or one approach to whatever. That again is Colin Lacey, Senior Software Engineer at Cisco. In this episode of the Cisco Learning Network podcast, Colin continues his discussion with community manager Matt Saunders and lead tech advocate Kareem Iskander about his career journey, how software engineers should learn the skill sets of a network engineer, and why it's important to do so. If you haven't already, we highly recommend listening to the first part of this discussion in the previous episode, where Colin talks about how he got started in software, the early lessons he learned, and his battle with imposter syndrome. In this second part of their discussion, Colin, Matt, and Kareem dive into the intersection between software and network engineering, and specifically how software engineers can best leverage tools and courses to help them acquire networking skills. I have a question along those lines. It's kind of a two different perspectives type of a question before we go and and really delve into kind of wrapping up on great resources that folks can leverage for folks that are in network engineering today and still looking to start to pick up and add the software development skills. What's the starting point for those folks? We still get asked that question. Is it Python? Is it working with APIs? What's the right starting point for folks that are five years into network engineering and they know that they need to adopt network automation skills? Where do they start? From my perspective, my go-to is to say, start with a language. Obviously, Cisco, we focused a lot on Python. You know, Kareem mentioned Golang. There are other network automation tools out there. Some are written in Golang, but start with a language. And even that is a decision onto itself, right? So do some research on what language options are available based on the thing you want to do. So Golang, that's my favorite language. That's the language I use the most. It's probably not the go-to if you're going to do data science, right? That would be like Python or R. But for cloud engineering, that's an easy language to get started up and running. All the Kubernetes stuff is written in Golang. Meanwhile, Python, plenty of Cisco libraries written in Python, plenty of network engineering libraries in general written in Python. Python, I would say, is probably these days one of the most ubiquitous languages, right? It's in game development, it's microservice development, it's it's pretty much everywhere. So start with a language, learn some coding best practices, right? Obviously, I would not be someone to say there is necessarily a right way, a single right way to do everything, but there's some good practices that can get you pretty far, right? Being able to write unit testable code is a pretty essential skill, right? And being able to actually write the unit tests. By that, I mean, it's small, it's concise, your functions are not overly complex, right? And getting in the habit of that is going to make your code cleaner, more maintainable, and easier for other people to read. From there, get to know some of the libraries that are out there. The more libraries you implement, the more patterns you'll see, right? And the more, I guess, use cases you'll be able to handle, right? Not every library is easy to get up and running. Some require some setup overhead, but don't be intimidated by that. It really is just a matter of spend the time, work through the errors, you will get there. Leverage your community, definitely, right? Drink the black coffee and then leverage your community and and put in those hours, you'll get there.
And I have to give a ton of credit to Kareem and his team, the technical advocates team, and the work that they do along those lines as well, of being engaged with the community, supporting the community, advising and leading the community as well. And then I think we talked a little bit about, about tutorials and that kind of work, but the work that Kareem's team, Kareem and his team are doing with tutorials inside of the Cisco U platform right now as well. Absolutely fantastic. And how we'll be leveraging that and integrating that into community forum discussions and really tying that back to the community at large as well. It's something I'm really excited about for this coming fiscal year and working with this team more. Yeah, thank you, Matt. I will got to shout out to Colin as well, who has been a huge help and fan of the tutorial. And I think we're working together on publishing some of the what he's been learning throughout his journey. So our CLN community who's listening to this, they'll definitely see some of his work on Cisco U. Oh, that's beautiful. That's great to know. Thank you. And so how about for the other folks, the folks that are software developers? And I don't know, maybe they've picked up a project where they need to work with a network engineer team and they need to understand networking concepts. What's our advice to those folks today on how to pick up I don't know. Is it the CCNA that we advise? I learned like probably the most minimal aspects of network, just learning my way through cloud, right? Because it's hard to learn cloud without learning some aspects of network, right? Network ingress, IP addresses, setting up your DNS resolutions. That's all part of setting up your cloud environment. At the same time, I was blown away by how much there was to learn when I got my CCNA. I was not prepared, I would say that. Compared to the you know associate level AWS, I would say the CCNA covers probably at least double, maybe triple the subject matter. You know, So from that perspective, it can be extremely intimidating. I would say because there is so much to learn, there's so many different directions you can go with it. While I was, I would say, taken aback by how much there was in network engineering that I knew nothing about, I also looked at it as these are all opportunities for me to dive into and get to know and explore a new world that is completely foreign to me. So going back to, you know, what I said about making sure that everything is 50% uncomfortable, you know, when I took the CCNA course, it was almost 100% uncomfortable for me, but it was exciting in that sense. And the labs, honestly, the labs in the CCNA course were my saving grace. They worked beautifully and, you know, obviously I, I went through the steps, but if I felt like straying off the path, that was the coolest thing about them is I could stray off the path and it was, you know, like working with the real device. So if I said, okay, I just configured this VLAN, let me do, you know, X, Y, or Z with it, as opposed to just closing the, the lab right now. I could do that. That was something that I got a lot of value from. Nowadays, I've got a box sitting on the side of my desk here and I've got CML installed and I just mess up networks left and right with that thing. And it's a lot of fun. <laughs> That's beautiful. I love that. The CCNA course you mentioned with the labs, that was the course that's inside of Cisco U now? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Beautiful. And you felt like that saved you time and headaches and heartache? I'll just be straight with you. I passed the CCNA taking that one course and the binary game that's in Cisco Learning Network. If you're not familiar with the binary game on the Cisco Learning Network, it's a free PC arcade style game that teaches the binary system. A lot of folks have mentioned that this game has really helped them out in their CCNA studies, so we highly recommend you checking it out. We'll put a link to it in the description. Between those two resources, past the CCNA, that game is amazing. No, seriously, I, I, that was the best way to learn binary. Shout out to the binary game. Yeah, it was phenomenal. Highly recommend to anyone going after a CCNA. That makes my heart warm and fuzzy. Thank you, Colin, for sharing that. That binary <laughs> game, man, is awesome. 
So live stream binary game challenge, head to head competition, 10 minutes, who gets the best score? That's my fun idea for the year. It would be fun to see like a esports binary game challenge. There you go. Set up for Cisco Live. It would be fun. That would actually be a lot of fun. I would lose quickly compared to all the network engineers who like know this stuff by the back of their hand, but it would be fun. That's my theater session pitch for this year, Kareem. CML, you mentioned too, Colin. So that's your next, that's the evolution for you is like you said, messing up networks left and right via CML. Yeah, I mean, I would like to know more about network automation and seeing what some of the fun things you can do with it are, right? I've got my own Kubernetes cluster that I work on every day. And it's it's not that it's boring because it's definitely not, but it is comfortable for me to, you know, say, all right, I want to pop in a node autoscaler. That's not going to be too much of a challenge anymore, right? Learning my way around Helm to install packages without too much work, having my CICD pipeline set up to deploy things with the click of a button. It doesn't take a lot right to manage that Kubernetes environment anymore, not when compared to when I first set it up. So for me, network automation is really my next big uncomfortable area to dive into. Hearing the two of you afraid of anything technology and coding wise makes me feel a thousand times better. So I'm glad you guys are sharing that. Colin, you're telling me Kubernetes networking is comfortable for you? I, it, it, yeah, it kind of is to be honest. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Impressive. Well, I've, been, I've been doing Kubernetes since 2018, so it's been a long time I've been hands-on with it. Yeah, that's one thing I get scared thinking about it. Dude, you're not alone. It's a very niche area of cloud ops. Not a lot of people are comfortable with it. So yeah, it's a lot to learn. Oh, dude, definitely. We, I mean, I lose sleep sometimes on some of the projects that I have to work on or demos or, or sessions. I lose sleep because I sometimes don't know what's going on. I don't lose sleep. I don't know. I've, like I said, I've at the beginning, I've got kind of a fighter's mentality of like, I won't be beaten by ones and zeros. How dare they? Yeah. You read documentation. You don't lose sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I'm sure you guys have seen Hank's talk about how to be a network engineer in the, in the automation age. Colin is talking about principal engineer Hank Preston, who created a presentation that walks through the evolution of the network engineer's role in the industry, beginning with the interaction of physical appliances before virtualization. In addition, Hank covers some programming and networking skills that are relevant today, and also talks a little bit about open systems interconnection, or the OSI model. We actually had Hank on the show to cover this presentation, and we highly recommend you give it a listen. Fantastic presentation. And to me, the most essential message that came out of that was you will not do everything, right? You will work on a team and there will be roles within that team and different people who specialize in different things. I'll be honest, that is not a well-known fact. I've got a ton of friends who have seen Silicon Valley, the TV show, right? And every one of those software engineers could manage a network and manage infrastructure and write every single language and build an AI that could crack the world's greatest encryptions, right? So I can't tell you the amount of times like I've been pulled into a conversation like, hey, Colin, you write code. We need an AI. It's like, okay, <laughs> good for you. I'm not going to build it. <laughs> I don't know anything about data science. With every skill set in software, you can go horizontal, right? You can go wide and, and be a generalist. And that's not a bad thing to be a generalist and know a little bit about every topic. Or you can go deep into one or just a, a couple of topics. And there's no wrong answer there. But the deeper you go and more specialized, obviously, the, the more value you'll be able to provide in that one area, right? So if it's DevOps, which is where I've spent a lot of my time, you might miss out on some other things. Like I said, I'm not going to be the data science guy. I'm never going to be the data science guy, right? But I can 
set up an MLOps pipeline and I can automate that deployment because I've spent a lot of time on DevOps, right? So, you know, me working on a hardware analytics team, that's kind of like the understood division of work is I'll set up the environment for them, right? I'll set up their cloud environment. I'll set up their Jenkins jobs to deploy everything out. I'll set up their one button deploys. I will not be writing the ML models ever, right? They tell me what databases they need to connect to. They tell me what data streams they need to be available. I got that. That's my role. And it's not bad. I don't think there's a downside to picking a skill set and saying, I want to go deep into this, right? There's some trade-offs, right? You may be focusing on something and yes, it's very valuable, but there might not be a lot of jobs. Until recently, I knew a lot of people in security who were struggling to find work. Now they are not struggling to find work, right? But for a long time in the 2010s, security teams were being laid off a lot. And it was a terrible time to be in security. Now it's very high in demand and they're doing great. And they're rising in their careers because it's so high in demand. For me, DevOps and cloud engineering was a great path for me to follow, but it's not to say it always will be. I really love that point about knowing the roles that exist within a team, right? Within the, the world of software development and networking as well. And understanding that, like you said, like Hank said in his presentation and his material, you know, there's roles and they exist. You don't need to know everything. You're right. Life is all about a trade-off, right? Like you could be a generalist and the trade-off is you'll have a certain depth to the level of knowledge, or you can be very specific and go deep and you won't know anything about anything on some other subject. And that's fine. All of that works. All of that plays. And it, like you said, it's all about trade-offs. Yeah. I would say early in career, it's a harder decision then of, you know, what you want to go deep into because you haven't been exposed to a lot of things. And in that sense, being a feature generalist might be the right path because that's going to get you more exposure to what's out there, right? It took me years before I said, yeah, cloud engineering, that's, that's really where I want to dive deep into. Once I did, I stuck with it and it's been great and enjoyable, lots of fun, but even that. Now that I'm very comfortable in it, I want to expand into something that's way outside my comfort zone. And so it's funny because, you know, when I started at GE, I was one of two front-end developers in the entire building. Everyone else was Java or C-sharp backend, right? Couldn't care less about how front-end worked. And now I'm at Cisco and I'm the software guy in a network company. Right? <laughs> and there's plenty of network engineers that know way more than I do about networking. So it's kind of fun, kind of intimidating to be back into that same mindset of I am way behind all of these people, but it's exciting too, right? Because there's a lot of opportunities to learn. And this time, a lot of opportunities, especially to bring what I know, since there are people who have been working in network want to know more about software. So it's very communal. There's a, there's a really good back and forth that I'm finding this time around. That's beautiful. I love that. And I think that we as a company greatly value and appreciate front end development and, and design skills more so than ever currently as well. Yeah, I would say so. That's been a really big focus in Meraki, especially because they've got a new design language that they're, I think it's expanding outside of just the Meraki products now. That's been a really big hit. 
Yeah, I know there's a lot of focus on unifying the user experience and you see it in Cisco U, right? Cisco U has got a really nice, easy to use navigation, right? Everything's very cohesive and you're not bouncing around a bunch of places. I like that. I do too. I know that one of the big pain points for the community is multiple different platforms and user experiences to go through. And that goal for Cisco U to consolidate and simplify is a very just, you know, pure and beautiful and admirable goal, not to be uh, overly sentimental about it, but it is, it's beautiful. I love the, the vision and the direction there. And I think you're right. I think Meraki has always done a great job with that. And, you know, is a great shining light for others to follow as an example. Certainly. But to be honest, I'm retired from front end development in 2017. And now every time I have to jump back into a front end, I, I just struggle to do it. I do not miss it at all. <laughs> I'm the same. So I, I sort of shared that my early experience was in design with like Adobe tools. And now 20 years later, if I try to design something, my wife or my coworker that's a actually talented and skilled designer, <laughs> they get, they get, um, yeah, they, they just tell me to walk away from the, from the, the computer and let them <laughs> handle that part. Yeah, yeah I can understand yeah. that. The communal experience that you share as well with the group and the team and the organization that you're in now is something else that I think definitely, I think resonates with our listeners as being a part of the Cisco Learning Network community and how much they lean on each other and share knowledge and information with each other. And I love this connection of sharing the software developers approach and knowledge base as well with, with the network engineering community. So I know for myself, Personally, you volunteering to come on and do this episode to kind of share some of your perspective and your pains and how you got over those pains. I, I feel like I can speak for the community that will be listening. That It's greatly appreciated. Yeah, sure. There really is a great roster of personalities in the Cisco community. Their wealth of information and you know their experiences are fantastic to just learn from. Right. A lot of great people to listen to. Absolutely. From the greats like Wendell Odom, you know, to the rising stars in our community spotlight and community ambassador programs on the CLN community, the Cisco Learning Network community as well. You're spot on. There's so many people to, to just connect with and absorb knowledge from. As Matt and Colin start to wrap up their discussion, Colin talks about his ultimate high and low points in his career. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a great question. All right. So let's start with ultimate high point because that's easy and how I'm going to very skillfully deflect it. I would say every time there's a major breakthrough in anything I'm doing, like whether I'm learning or I'm trying to do something, it's just so exciting when it works, right? Especially if it's something that hasn't really been done a lot or I'm adopting a new technology that doesn't have a lot of adoption yet. I'll give you a recent example. And by recent, I mean last week. Apache Spark is a tool that's used for a lot of machine learning projects because it allows you to do parallel processing of large amounts of data. And that means you can crunch a ton of data, like way, way huge amounts of data very quickly. And so it's, it's a common tool in ML. And I was able to deploy a relatively new version of that called the Spark Kubernetes Operator into my team's cluster or te my team's Kubernetes cluster and get it working and, and it's, you know, auto scales and everything. And that was a huge win because what it allowed us to do was automate the deployment in, in a way that we're not spending on compute resources any more than we have to, right? It scales up, it scales down when the job's done, right? All the 
resources are scaled down so we're not spending money. We don't have a long-standing Spark cluster that's just soaking up tons of money and resources. So it was a huge win. And I was on cloud nine and like that was as recent as last week. And I think it, it's a feeling that I've had probably dozens of times in my career where it's like, yes, I can't believe I made that work, but I didn't and I'm past the hurdle and I feel amazing about it. I remember when I was able to get the synchronization work, like the way that offline apps work, right, is you're storing all the things that you do onto your phone's hard drive while you're offline. And then when you go online, it all syncs in the background. Not not only the, the data that you've worked with syncs back up to the cloud, but everything that's been happening syncs down to your phone and appears in your app as you come online. And when I was able to get that sync to not just be registered on the phone, but register in the app, it was kind of like a, a huge moment you know, on that project. And I felt just as excited last week as I did then back in 2015. And it's like that feeling of elation. So I, I can't say that there's one, any one high as much as like when I solve a really big problem every single time, it just feels amazing. And I hope that feeling never goes away. Low, I have had some lows though, <laughs> I would say. One, one of them honestly was when I realized I was just not passionate about front end anymore. I wanted to get out of front end. So 2017, you had Angular 2 or however many versions of Angular 2 Plus had been released by then, I think it was four. React was, it had really established itself as probably the front runner and almost happy that I've forgotten what the third one is because once that came onto the scene and had its own way of doing things, there was like this three-way battle of, you know, Angular versus React versus, again, whatever the third one is. I should definitely know it. And people were looking to me as a front-end architect, like, you need to know all three. I was like, dude, I, I honestly don't want to know all three. <laughs> <laughs> that was about probably three or four months before I made the transition out of front end and into cloud and started doing a lot more work on back end. Front end development, especially then, it moved so fast that if you, you know, set up a front end, six months later, there would be plenty of people in the community that said, oh, you're not up to date. You're doing it wrong. Have you not adopted this new thing that just came out two months ago? People seeing me as a technical leader in that space, it was so hard to keep up with. It really was. And I felt like this creeping imposter syndrome of, okay, I've made it as the technical leader, front end architect, people look to me for leadership and I'm not able to keep up with what they're doing. So am I an imposter as a technical leader? And that was hard. That was really, really hard. There were other situations like that earlier on the package management in front of development, Bower versus NPM. And if you've never heard of Bower, that's because NPM won. But at the time, that was a really big battle. And we had competing projects in GE that we were told we had to use. One used Bower, one used NPM. And it was like, how do we get these two totally competing dependency systems to merge together? And it just felt like this was a decision forced upon us by non-technical people and it hurt and it was painful and it was exhausting to figure out. And I, I was able to figure it out, but I was not proud of the solution at all. <laughs> and I would have much rather we let the technology drive that as opposed to the politics of the situation. But anyway, those are some of the lows. Yeah. One of the things that I think about when you're talking about the rapid change in tools with the front end development and some networking folks out there might laugh at me for what I'm about to say, but I'll say that I feel like overall, that's one of the nice things about networking 
Not to say that things don't change and don't change rapidly, but the core technology, the foundation of networking can hold relatively steady and true. What I feel like that can do is allow us to go deep and be creative on problem solving that isn't problem solving of learning the tools necessarily. Of course that changes as well, right? But yeah, you can solve your organization's problems and challenges at a different level of depth. Would you say that's relatively fair, Colin? Yeah, yeah, I, I would say so. Yeah, the more time you can spend with a tool or a set of technologies, I feel like just, you know, the more you can do with that tool and that technology and the challenge for me in my career, like when I, when I did IT, my challenge was always not necessarily so much, okay, how do I learn the next, you know, how do I learn Active Directory on Microsoft servers, right? It was more about like, okay, what's the next organizational problem and challenge that I can solve? And that was my constant drive, continuous improvements mentality that I just feel like I had a little more bandwidth to focus on broader organizational challenges. A little less time was being spent on having to constantly learn those new tools that were rap that sounds like were rapidly changing for you around that time with the front end technologies. Yeah, it's exactly that, right? Because we were being tasked with building features while we're also being tasked with, you know, upgrade to the latest, whatever. And that was tough. And it, I'll, I'll say something that I know a lot of software developers wish they had. We did actually, my team, we managed to convince our product team like, hey, why don't you give us six months to, you know, work on these technical upgrades, no new features. A lot of softwares would see that as the dream, like, whoa, you actually stopped feature development for six months and you have to like work on technical debt and technical upgrades. I can tell you that turned out to be miserable because what ended up happening was we spent so much time refactoring because you can't, I would say in a project that big, as big as that one was, you're going to end up adding tech debt anyway, as long as there's a deadline, right? You will never fix everything. So we were making trade-offs as we fixed the existing trade-offs, right? All the while the product team is sitting there watching the clock, like you're going to get back to features soon, right? So at the end, we weren't exactly happy with it, with the results and the product team was pretty angry that we weren't happy with the result because we put their features on hold. So it, it, yeah, we got to upgrade quite a bit of what we were doing to, you know, the latest, greatest libraries and whatever, but was it worth it? Absolutely not. Right. And on the other side of that pause, there was just a lot of animosity, a lot of animosity of, you know, especially the product team saying like, okay, you put features on hold for this long. And now you're saying you're not happy with the, with the result. That did not go well. But then even within the engineering team, it was, you know, which of the trade-offs that we made were the right ones, right? You know, what grudges were still there because of the technical trade-offs to, you know, fit our upgrades into that timeline. So yeah, upgrading the tools, I completely agree. Yes, sometimes it's, it's totally necessary without a doubt, but to do it just to do it or to do it because other teams get to do it and you want to, it doesn't always work out and it definitely doesn't always provide value. Absolutely. Yeah. That's so interesting. I, I really look forward to hearing. I hope that folks that listen to this episode later on and we'll do a community forum discussion around it. I hope we get a little bit of feedback on, on other folks' experience and, you know, pain points and non-pain points as well around that idea of keeping up with the pace of change in technology versus, you know, being able to go deep and solve deeper problems. Yeah. I'll be interested to hear what folks have feedback for on that. So before we wrap, I think basically two things. What's something that, that you want to make sure folks take away from this? What's your big 
I hate to force you to boil all of this down into one thing, but what's your big one point for folks to take away? Yeah, so I would say that the biggest thing that I would hope you take away from this, especially, you know, some of the stumbling blocks in my career that I shared is don't latch on to any one thing. Don't latch on to one language and be determined to prove other people wrong that it's the be all and end all or one library or one technology or one approach to whatever. When I was starting on freelancing, there was a really big battle back and forth between Ruby versus PHP versus Python and, you know, which one's the right one. And there were a lot of people, not just myself, but a lot of people that I knew who were just determined, like, I won't learn Ruby. I won't learn Python, right? I won't learn PHP. That's not productive. Be open to all the technologies out there because, you know, like I said, with Kubernetes, I just, what does that word mean? And now I've got a career built on it. It's amazing what you can stumble across just by being curious as opposed to being closed-minded right, and defensive. So I think that's that's the one thing I hope people will take away, especially as you're exploring software. The software world is so huge that if anyone were to approach it with a closed mind, they would miss out on a lot. I love that. And I think that can help lower some of the intimidation barriers as well, right? Like because you might choose to start with X today, go for it, you know, and then, you know, keep yourself open and you'll learn more and you'll continue and continue and continue to evolve. Yeah, definitely. You know, in, in that sense, to go from cloud engineering to network automation, I don't think is a big jump compared to going from front end development to cloud engineering. Like connecting those dots and going back over it in my head is actually still really hard because it is such a big jump. You know, even though I did it, I lived through it. But it does, to your point, you can start on something and end up on something totally different. And it's okay, right? There's no wrong entry point, in my opinion, in software. I think your whole, your, the whole trajectory of your, of your career path, right, from college to where you're at now is a, a very clear and loud example of exactly that. Like, and I tell folks that my, I have, um, my kids are starting college age times and all their friends, right. And they're all a little afraid of what career path to choose and what major in college to study. And some folks want to just study fine arts, but their parents tell them they won't get a job. And I always tell them like, study what you want to study, learn what it is you want to learn. The evolution of your career is going to take different twists and turns and just be open-minded just accept the path that is going to come and you'll be just fine yeah definitely especially be open to opportunities because they're they're going to be there they're going to present themselves right you just got to be open to them and i think that'll take you a long way yeah and have fun and don't let those ones and zeros kick your butt do not do that <laughs> like trust yourself yeah. it's only a matter of time until you you'll figure it out definitely Thank you, Colin. I'm going to recruit you or pull you into a, a little bit of a broader world. You're obviously just a, honestly a fantastic and tremendous resource for folks. How can folks connect with you a little bit further after listening to this episode? Probably the best way is on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. It's Colin J. Lacey. That's it for our interview with senior software engineer, Colin Lacey. To find other stories and advice from experts like Colin, and to get news about the ever-changing world of Cisco certifications, please subscribe to the Cisco Learning Network podcast. And to find the study resources that Colin, Matt, and Kareem mentioned, please visit the Cisco Learning Network at learningnetwork.cisco.com. There, you can find all kinds of training videos, study guides, exam topics, and an entire community of others to help support you on your learning journey. Thanks for listening.